as Amy reads, I'd really encourage you to try and immerse yourself in this piece of story. So um, it's leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, Jesus is being dragged around um, various authorities who are trying to work out what to do with him. Um, if you can, um, place yourself in the scene somewhere as an onlooker um, and try and experience um, the terror um, confusion and the love that our Lord Jesus offers us. So. It's from Luke chapter 23. Then Pilate called together all the leading priests and other religious leaders, along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So I'll have him flogged and then I will release him. Then a mighty roar arose from the crowd and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to, be coming in, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Because the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child, and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us, and plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Thanks, Amy.
So as we sit in the scene, we've got Jesus beaten, bruised, stripped, humiliated, dragged before a hysterical crowd, paying for his blood in exchange for Barabbas, a man of action, a violent revolutionary, a man who stood up to imperial Rome and was killed for the sake of the cause, a man who did what Jesus refused to do, try and take freedom by force. Through the sickening, dizzying pain, beyond the primal knee-jerk of revenge and hatred, Jesus uttered the unthinkable, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Please um, have that PowerPoint up, Rob. So I just want to, I guess, discuss together for a moment what what do you make of that line? Preview. Not one back. We have the magic of disappearing slides. The slide said, <laughs> Father, forgive them. You may have figured this out already, those of you playing at home, but they know not what they do. What do you make of that line in this context, in this scenario? What questions arise for you from that line? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Have a think, and if anyone's got anything to say, just I'd love to have your voice. It doesn't have to be profound. There's no pressure. Sorry, me again. It seems like they know exactly what they're doing. So if they're not doing what they think they're doing, what are they doing? Or what does Jesus say to them? What's happening? Hmm. Not really profound, but... um Jesus' love must have been incredibly profound to um, say that. And also, for me, I was thinking of the hypocrisy of the people there couldn't see. I'm automatically drawn to um, <laughs> knowing how angry I get when I stub my toe and how sweary and how vengeful. That Jesus could see through pain is just crazy. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You've got soldiers driving nails into Jesus' arms and feet. Professionals in violence, cogs in a war machine, 
pawns in a much larger game. Posted to the political tinderbox of Judea, where violence could erupt at any moment, it was a dangerous place for any soldier. The Sakari roaming the streets, a stealth group of Jewish revolutionaries who sidled up to soldiers in busy streets and quietly drove a dagger into their ribcage before slipping away into the crowd. In the empire, like all great empires, total violence was the only way to peace. And these soldiers were raised on force, blooded from a young age, raised to be merciless whenever the state required it. They had seen things. They had done things that they'd spend the rest of their life suppressing, but would still haunt their dreams. On the surface, they were numb. This was any other day, the cries of the subhuman Jew barely registered a response. Another, another failed revolutionary, another nail. Did they know they were inflicting pain? Did they know they were taking life? Did they know they were staring into the glazed eyes of a desperate man? Of course they did. They knew exactly what was happening. So what did Jesus see? What did Jesus think they didn't know? Another way of being. They no longer knew what it was like to feel the pain of a victim. They did not know, nor did they care, how to break this cycle. They could not see the fruit of endless violence over the course of history, nor could they see the power of a life laid down. They did not know what the fierce, costly love of Jesus could look like, what it could do to the world. I want you to imagine for a moment that there is a life beyond this. I want you to imagine a time where the soldiers stand before Jesus. I want you to imagine that they now see clearly that the one who refused the sword now stands above all. I want you to imagine them collectively remembering their actions that day and on so many other days. I want you to experience the wave of shame and anguish that threatens to drown them. These calloused, muscled, scarred men, broken and awash in tears at the horror they've created. Flashback stream of the horror they've inflicted. Like an ocean, the knowledge, the weight of what they've done crashes down on them. And they now know what they did. And they know what they were caught up in. They stare into the eyes of the one who knew all along. Who extends a hand to pull them to their feet. To embrace them. To echo again. To give them. But they know not what they did. For all of us who bear shame who carry moments with us that we cannot undo, nor can we forget. We long to receive that grace, to be seen in our worst moment and looked upon with love, 
to arrive at full knowledge of what we have done and still be able to receive the embrace of another, to remain human, to be gazed upon by one who sees from eternity. We long to receive forgiveness, to not be exiled. We long to still have a place at the table. We long to remain human even when we have dehumanized others. We long to be exempt from revenge. We long for others to go to the costly process of foregoing their right to exclude and instead choose to draw us near. When we stare at our part in patriarchy and colonization and racism and bigotry, we long to be forgiven. We long for the difficult path of restoration. And yet, and yet, we know full well why we refuse to offer this to others. We know all too well how costly it is to extend this kind of love. We know the deep pain of victimhood too and how entitled we, ref- we feel to exact revenge. So how do we become forgivers? First, by knowing what it is to be seen with eyes of grace, to know deep in our bones what it is to be forgiven. I'm going to invite you this time to take up the symbols of communion of blood spilled, of flesh scarred, given that you might know what it is to be looked upon by someone who knows you, all of you, and loves you. And so we have the elements in the middle of the room here, and um, we're going to listen to another piece of music as we gather around the table. So I just invite you as the music plays to pick a piece of cracker, and some juice, and hold those elements, um, and stand before that fierce, costly love, and first know what it is like to experience the gaze of the forgiver. To give you a very, very brief synopsis, we've um, tried to broaden our focus um, when we, most of us think about prayer, the kind of first thing we think about is, about is whether it works or not, um, because we approach prayer basically in terms of us asking God for stuff and then God doing it or not doing it and us being very happy or very annoyed. Um, and for those of us who have been around this thing for a while, we've worked out that um, if we hold that approach to prayer, it gets really complicated because... Um, Often what we want doesn't happen, and we have to work our way through that. So one of the things that we're trying to do as a community is take a step back and broaden our scope a little bit. Um, we will get back to where prayer, whether prayer works or not a little bit later on in the series, but um, we're not trying to nudge towards um, understanding how God works in the world. And what we realized for lots of us is that we carried this kind of paper mache view of God, um, of all these kind of like, bits of pieces of God ideas um, 
from all over the place. And it, for many of us, that God idea kind of formed a monster uh, where God is this kind of like all-controlling Zeus-like figure who like sometimes decides to like make stuff happen and then other times when we really need it, um, just doesn't care and doesn't bother. Um, and we've decided that we can't live with that. We've also decided that it's not actually very Jesus-y at all. If God is like anything, as Christians, we feel like if God is like anything, then God is like Jesus. Um, and so we're not willing to settle for this kind of um, Jesus who is gracious and giving and generous and full of love and judges through the eyes of kindness and grace, holding back this kind of angry 60s dad um, father figure who just really wants to smite everybody and you know is all-powerful and in control of everything and just kind of like allowed the Holocaust to happen without really caring about it. We can't live with that split in the Trinity. So for us... Um, Seeing God through the lens of Jesus is the place that we start in seeing God. And I think that's a very Christian thing to do. So um, we've decided to reject God as Zeus and God as the cosmic vending machine who, you know, you put your prayer in and then it either falls or it gets stuck and then you've got to put your arm up it and shake it and then get stuck and then get cut out of it. Um, and instead look to Jesus for our leads on how God might work in the world. So we're broadening past kind of just request and looking at how God's activity is described through the life of Jesus. Um, and we're starting with this prayer, which is in here, some, which might be in here somewhere. Is it though? It's oh, See, I gave Warwick the wrong PowerPoint. Ah, oh, yeah. Oh, hello. But we found the bit I needed anyway. So this is, this is the Abba prayer. So Abba is um, Papa or Daddy. Um, we're going to use Papa because it sounds less creepy. Um, Papa God, who is in heaven, blessed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So today, just for today, I want you to... Imagine God as the great inviter. So we've talked over the last few weeks about the idea of prayer as participation and formation. And I want today us to think about God as the great inviter. Oh, I really want the other PowerPoint because it's got like the actual things I want. Can you entertain yourselves for like a minute? Because it's going to make my job so much easier if we actually have the real PowerPoint. Is that okay? I mean, I don't care. I'm just making you feel like you're part of the decision-making process, like any good parent.
Excellent. Boo. We're back. The good news is we're not editing out of this from the podcast either, so they can suffer through this as well because they couldn't be bothered coming and they're not getting special treatment. Um, oh, there you go. So that was from before. That was one from before. That's helpful, isn't it, now? All this time later. Um, you may notice I'm a fan of Coptic iconography, which is like a group of Egyptian um, Eastern Orthodox-ish um, Christians, and they do just... Uh, just a beautiful artwork. So, but we're going to use some Russian Orthodox as well. Um, so this is on the left is Rublev's Trinity, um, and it's hard to tell from up there. But those three characters are looking at each other in a circle. So Jesus is looking at the Spirit, who's looking at the Father, so on and so forth. On the right hand side is um, another Eastern Orthodox idea kind of merged with a Celtic idea of the Trinity, of the great dance, um, where the community of God, and this again is where we need to really work hard on our view of God because so many of us, our default picture is kind of Zeus slash old man river, white bearded person in the sky, um, which is just so far from traditional Christian understanding of who God is. God, in this view, is a community of space makers. And another icon you can use is three stools, the chair ones like that, not the other ones. And God, the three persons of God, moving between the stools in this kind of, um, what's the game called? Musical chairs, but where there's enough chairs for everyone. And so, God is this constant movement of giving over what God has to make space for an other. So the persons of God, the Father making space for the Son, who makes space for the Spirit, who makes space for the Father, who makes space for the Son, who makes space for the Spirit. And when we understand God, we understand God as a movement of self-giving love. What sits at the center of the universe, the very fabric of the universe is God making space for the other so that the other can engage itself in a community of love. God as the great inviter. Hold for a minute that as your primary picture of God and God's activity that in everything God does, God is trying to bring all of creation into a community of self-giving love. I have had a lot of issues with God in my lifetime and still do. (laughs) But if I can love God, it is because I see God as the God of self-giving love who invites us into community. This is N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament theologian. Beautiful British accent. Seen with Christian hindsight, more specifically the Trinitarian perspective, the Lord's Prayer becomes an invitation to share in the divine life itself. It becomes one 
of the high roads into the central mystery of Christian salvation and Christian existence, that the baptized and believing Christian is incorporated into the inner life of the triune God and intended not just to believe that this is the case, but to actually experience it. In the Jesus prayer, we get this model of God inviting us in and then this response of us inviting God in. Which, so this is our framework for today for how we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. That God, is, that God is inviting us into mutual longing, mutual action, and mutual invitation. That God longs for something in the world and invites for us to long for that with him. That God invites us to participate in the world and that we in turn invite God to participate in the world. That God acts in the world in mighty and minute ways, drawing all things towards good and invites us to do the same. So looking at the Lord's Prayer, there's this line, these lines, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I just want to point out that for Zeusy God, for all-powerful God, for all-controlling God, for the tyrant, overlord, benevolent dictator of the universe God, that line makes no sense. Because it implies that God's will is not done. And if Jesus is teaching this prayer to his disciples, it's a really strange line to ask the omnipotent, all-powerful, does-whatever-he-wants overlord of the universe to do what he already wants to do. Because why would that guy listen? He already does what he wants to do. But instead, Jesus is pointing us towards Abba, towards the God of non-coercive love. Jesus is teaching us to ask God to do what God wants to do. Is that strange? And then if we bring Pauline thought into this, in Romans, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us and through us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. So now you've got God praying through us to God for what God wants to do, which is some weird puppeteering stuff. Well, it would be if it was coercive. But instead, if you see it as immersive, that God longs for something to happen in the world, this never happens, I'm standing up. (laughs) But if God wants something to happen in the world, rather than just enforcing God's will on the world, God goes to his co-creating participants and draws them towards that longing to the place where they go, we go, God let this happen. If you've ever seen something so profoundly unjust happen that you shout at God and go, why is this happening? It cannot happen. Thinking that it's your idea, then you're beginning to understand participatory 
prayer to the great inviter, that God longs for a world of justice, that God so hates seeing violence and abuse, that he draws us into that longing to the point where we cry out and say, do something about this. And then the logical conclusion goes that somehow God is released in a way that God wasn't to do something about this. This is very circle thinking. So if it's confusing, it's okay. This is an intro into this idea, which we'll need to sit with for a while. Let's look at this line down here, just to close. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So there's this circle thing happening in there. If you match this with Jesus' parable of the unforgiving debtor, where this one guy's like, I owe the king a whole heap of money. I can't pay it. And the king's like, that's okay. I'll just give you the money. And that guy goes, thank goodness, that's great. And then goes, this guy owes me heaps of money. And that guy goes, I can't pay. And the guy goes, throw him in jail. And then the king hears about it and goes, well, I'm not going to forgive your debt if you're going to be such a punk. Paraphrasing. Child sensitive. This prayer indicates that we don't just get to be forgiven. But to be invited into forgiveness. That whatever we request, God wants us to be participants in that. To ask for forgiveness from God, yet to not want to forgive someone else. To be forgiven isn't the point. To live a life moving towards forgiveness is what God is trying to draw us into. God's longing for shalom or for the restoration of all things good, for the world to be how it's meant to be, as married by our falling in love with the same thing and longing for that. God's invitation to us to make the world a place where redemption and forgiveness and grace and self-giving love are the fabric of that world, as matched by our invitation and longing for God to do the same thing, and then God inviting himself through us as participants to act in that way, which is matched by God's action, both mighty and minute, but not just waiting for God to act by God's self, but us actually taking part in the kinds of lives that invite people into wholeness, the kind of lives that refuse to scapegoat, the kind of lives that move towards forgiveness, the kind of lives that give ourselves over for someone else. Again, for us to ask God to bring restoration in a situation we're not prepared to, misses the point. Because God wants to, us, God wants to bring us into the life of God. That's the end game this whole thing. And so all, oh, this is our forgiveness one. 
this potentially gets a little confusing. But God's longing, so think about those soldiers. God longs to be reconciled with those soldiers. Those soldiers long to be embraced and receive God's embrace. But the natural counterpart, the natural flow out of that is for those soldiers to long for the world to be embraced by God and to be willing to embrace the world themselves. That crazy Jesus-y thing of loving your enemies. God's action of modeling grace in Jesus and through other people is mirrored by our action, humbling ourselves before grace, then showing it to others. God's invitation to be embraced is matched by our embracing of God and then our inviting others to embrace by us and then our inviting others to be embraced by God because that closes the circle. This is all prayer. Mutual longing, mutual invitation, mutual action, all of these things together are doing what good prayer is supposed to do, which is to bring us into the life of God. So if we narrow prayer down to whether our requests get answered or not, I think we're missing something really substantial. That God's main activity is not just to change a particular thing or to forgive a particular thing or to act in a particular way. That God's main activity is to scoop up all of creation into the community of God, the community of, love, of self-giving love, the community of sacrifice, the community of embrace, the community of forgiveness, the community of grace, the community of generosity, the community of wholeness, the community of, ex- of inclusion over exclusion. That that's God's main activity in every situation, to not just do things to the world, but to call all of the world into the community of God. And for us, who have some kind, apparently, of inviting, permission-giving role in all of this, that there are some things that God cannot do without our participation. That's my proposal. (laughs) Um, We're going to wrap up really shortly. So... Commentary on that? That may have been totally perplexingly mind-boggling and I may have made no sense, but let's see. Resonate with it? Don't resonate with it? What questions does it invite? I'll let Rod handle all these next week because it's his, so go for gold. It's not my problem. I love Louise. I do. Sorry, it shows I'm listening, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I think it's actually fantastic what you've just said and how you linked it, how, how it does link back to what you were saying in the, before the communion about that embracing um, of a loving God, um, you know, bringing us into understanding and action and all those things. 
I just wanted to make a little comment that I've heard too, that when you pray, um, for me, prayer is conversation with a, a very close friend, an intimate friend. So, you know, I might be telling him how I feel good or bad, as well as making requests or thanks or whatever. Um, and often prayer, I have heard, is, is God changing your mind about something. You know, if you're really praying um, in a meditative way and, and just asking God to talk to you and, and as you pray, I often find that God sends you in a different direction or about someone or something. And so, you know, really being open to not saying, I want this or I want that, but, you know, just saying, well, what do you want? to happen in this situation that he can change our mind and say, have you thought about this or, um, you know, someone someone else might come into your head about someone you should go and see or whatever. So that's, it's a very interactive thing for me, yeah. So glad to have some elders here. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I really dig all this sort of stuff, um, like the idea of, Participating in um, loving action um, as prayer, um, in addition to the type of prayer that Louise speaks of, um, has has been really fundamental um, for my kind of understanding of God and Christianity. Um, and it's really nice to have this kind of put into words in a different way than I've sort of read about it in the past. The only thing that I like get scared about is coming up with like an internal weird God complex where it's like I'm participating in. God things, and therefore, am I a little bit God? Like, uh, like, where's the line? Like, just being quite conscientious of that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's quite nice to be in like a space of humility and and loving action as well. So, yeah, it's cool. Thanks, man. I really love the idea that when we see something and we're outraged by it, and we call on God to fix it, that that is God working through us and it then becomes our responsibility to change and that's um, something that I struggle with a lot to know what's the right thing to do, how do we actually affect change Um, and sometimes it can seem really overwhelming that we're in this corporate capitalist system that um, is so alienating to everything to community, to even um, how we produce and eat food and waste and it's just so bad for the environment and all these things. Um, but that gets back to something that we've talked about in the past of Jesus was a revolutionary. He did help to overthrow an empire and cha- fundamentally change an empire and I think that we just have to have that long view in mind um, and see our responsibility in trying to um, address that injustice. Yeah, and we very generously created an empire for him um, in response to his overthrowing of an empire in Christendom. Um, anyway, that's an aside. Um, <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. The, the, the scary thing, I guess, that this makes us confront, um, depending on how scared you are by it, is that some things are not possible for God. It doesn't all come down to whether God wants something done or not, but that there's that the mystery lies in the fact that 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 God has either foregone or is bound by particular things that 
in this participatory idea, no one is in absolute control, that we all have a part to play. God is always doing what God can do. He invites us to do the same. But I'll leave that for Rod next week. Um, anyone else? Any closing thoughts? Thanks so much for what you've offered so far. There's so much wisdom in a single example. No? Okay. Lovely. Um, anyway, so mull on that, or forget it. Um, it's up to you. I'm not going to know. Um, but, yeah, it's been really lovely to be together this morning. As I said, I've got to duck off pretty soon, so I don't get to say goodbye. Goodbye. Um, let's pray to the great inviter. Abba, Mama, Papa. It has been said that when you flex your muscles, it looks like Jesus on the cross. That your real power is in self-giving love and in the invitation for us to do the same. Help us to know what what runs deep in this world, what sits underneath all of this, that we might participate in it. Help us to not be controllers, but participants, to be givers, to be lovers, to be forgivers, flowers of grace. As we walk out of these doors, help us not to just try and attempt to mold the world in our own image, but to live lives that include and that pass on that incredible feeling of being profoundly loved. Let us sit with us this week as we go about our daily lives. Amen. Amen.